Into the Wilderness is the title. Into the Wilderness. And we're going to read Matthew 3, verses 13 through 4, chapter 1. And then 11, 12, and 17. So just follow along. Matthew 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened up to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Verses 11 and 12, further down, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Then verse 17, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that your spirit would be upon this text and that your words would come out of my mouth as I attempt to preach your word accurately and with passion and emphasis and inspiration. God, I ask that your people would be blessed for the sacrifice they made today to come to church to know you better. In Jesus' name, amen. Including, I love the question that Eric asked, what does it mean, righteousness? We're going to get into all that next week because we have a time crunch today. And what I want to do with the time we have today is focus on the last verse of, well, not really the last verse because I added more to it. Focus on verse 1 of chapter 4, that, which says, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Do you think it's odd that Jesus, right after this amazing experience, is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness specifically to be tempted by Satan? Meaning, that's why he was led there. That was the purpose. Do you think that's odd? That Jesus, in the moment when he is acknowledged, he gets baptized, the Father speaks, people hear it, the Holy Spirit, it sounds like a dove, we see the Trinity. And again, all next week, but that moment, we call those things mountaintop experiences. Do you know why we call them that? Why it's called a mountaintop experience? Well, it's actually because often churches have retreats in the mountains. And so you go to this mountain, there's these pretty views, but also in those retreats, God might speak to you in a very special way. You might be confessing your sins, giving your life to Him like you've never done it before, and you're with others who are doing the same thing. You have this great moment, and they call it a mountaintop experience. But what happens after the mountaintop? You've got to come down off the mountain. And oftentimes at camps, they'll warn you. When you go back into your regular life, just remember 
Every week, you don't get to have chapel three times a day. You don't get to pray with believers three or four times a day. You're not surrounded by believers with amazing food in beautiful countryside. It's back to regular life, back to work, back to family, back to kids. And there's this kind of culture shock that happens. And so we call it a mountaintop experience. And so Jesus here kind of had that moment. You'd probably expect verse 17 to happen next. And in your own life, I bet you expect a verse 17 to happen right after your mountaintop experience. And what what I mean by verse 17 is in chapter 4, verse 17, where it says, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When you have those mountaintop experiences, you might expect the next thing that happens is God's going to use me. And that's part of your mountaintop prayer is like, God, I want to be used. I want to go back into my world. And I want to tell the whole world about Jesus. And it's going to be amazing. They're all going to listen to me. They're all going to respond. But something else has to happen first. Something else is necessary first. And I say necessary because of verse 15. I believe. In verse 15, so my translation now, the ESV says fitting, but many translations say necessary. When Jesus was getting baptized, he said, it is necessary for me to do this in order to fulfill all righteousness. And I believe Jesus going into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan was also necessary to fulfill all righteousness because Jesus in his life fulfilled all things for us. And he was also a model for us in his life. All the things in his life, we should be modeling ourselves after it's a pattern for us, including this. So what do we learn about this situation? Being led into temptation after a mountaintop experience before his ministry takes off. How is that a model for us? Well, it turns out that it's not just a model we see in Jesus, but in all over the Bible. This is a pattern. And I began seeing this a couple of years ago, and I thought this might be an interesting book to write when I have more than 20 minutes to go into detail about it. But I want to give you a couple of examples of people in the Bible that heard from God in an amazing way, and they get a promise from God. And yet before that happens, there's this desert experience they have to go through first. First example is Noah. In Genesis 6, verse 5, God sees the wickedness of man and every intention of his thoughts are evil continually. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so then God comes to Noah and says, I've decided to put an end to the current situation on earth. I'm going to destroy everybody except for you and your sons and their wives and your families. So make it, make an ark. So that's amazing. God speaks to him, gives him a task. Sounds great. It's estimated it took him about 55 to 75 years to build that ark. Based on many things I could share with you later. But anyway, so Noah finds favor with God. God calls him into something great. But now it takes 55 to 75 years before Noah gets to see that fulfillment. Because we have little time, I'm not going to answer questions 
but write it down, ask me after, but we have to have very little time, so I'm going to use my time. So even then, the flood comes, and then they're on a boat, and they've got to trust that eventually the waters are going to subside. And it takes about 370 days for the waters to subside. So all this waiting before the promise. Next example, Abraham. Genesis 12. God speaks to him, calls him out of his people, away from his home to a new place. You probably know the story. Abraham obeys, and God promises, I'm going to make you a great nation. The problem? His wife is barren. Now, it could have been his fault. We don't know whether it was him or her. Either way, they couldn't have kids for a long time. Finally, when Abraham's 100 and Sarah's 90, they have their first son. But before that point, they struggle. They're given a promise. They're waiting for it, but they struggle. There's this great story, and I've actually taught this before. For any of you that from the Lion Church, you remember I taught two Sundays. It was the last Sunday of the year and the first Sunday of the next year, and I taught two Sundays on this story in Genesis 12 at the end of it. So they obey, right? They, they leave their land. God begins showing them all this land. He says, I'm going to give all this to you and your descendants. And then a famine happens in the land, and Abraham goes down to Egypt. Think of a verse for that. He goes to Egypt, and that wasn't part of the plan. God was just showing him the lands he was going to give him. Abraham made an altar. He set up a tent, and all of a sudden, a trial comes, and they leave to Egypt. Then while they're there, he thinks, well, my wife's beautiful. Don't say thanks yet. This is why I'm saying that. They're going to kill me, so say you're my sister. That whole thing happens. God protects them, points out to Pharaoh, this is not right. Pharaoh's like, what are you doing? Get out of my land. So now Abraham's embarrassed. He kind of ends that part of his life with an embarrassing chapter. His legacy in Egypt is an embarrassing one. But he goes back. This is what I love. In, um, so verse 20, that chapter in Genesis, Pharaoh sends him away. But then in the next chapter, verse 3, he goes to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at first, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So he goes back. Now this is a sign to me more than anything else, of a real believer. Not that you never make mistakes, but that when you do, you go back. You get up again. You keep getting up. Because we've been given promises, but we're waiting for a lot of them. And while we're waiting, like Abraham, there's going to be trials, and we might go down to Egypt. We might lose faith for a minute, make a mistake, and God will call us back, and we've got to return to that place we set up that spiritual altar where God spoke to us and begin calling on God again. Now, that also wasn't the end of Abraham's trials, right? They also had to trust that they were going to be a great nation. That wasn't happening for a while, so they made mistakes along the way, and he slept with her servant, and that whole thing happened. But then they get their son, and that's not a nation, yet it's, it's, it's one son. Then God commands him to sacrifice his son. So he's obedient. And right before he does it, God says, okay, great. That was a test. You passed. Here's a ram. Use that instead. So great, awesome. But it's still just a son, not a nation. Right? So then his son Isaac 
has a son, Jacob, which that's great, one son, not a nation. Jacob then has 12 sons, that's great, but not a nation. So where's the promise to Abraham? Guess what it takes before they become a nation? Slavery. It's in Egypt when Joseph is escalated there to the right hand of the Pharaoh that he brings his family to be taken care of in Egypt during a famine, and they stay there, and over time, they're getting more and more populous. Egypt decides, so they don't take over our country, let's now enslave them, and they're slaves for hundreds of years. And then Moses calls them out, and then 40 years after that, they're finally a nation. It takes all that time. So it's a lot of examples, and I could give many more if I had more time. You can think of Joseph, who was given these visions, and then he had to get imprisoned, right? And then enslaved, falsely accused, betrayal by his own brothers before he saw God's calling on his life come to pass. You can think of Moses, who saw God speak in a burning bush, then his people rejected him, then they accepted him, but then they weren't released, and then they were mad at him, and he kept saying, God, what's, what am I going to do with these people? They won't listen to me. Finally, after all these miracles, he and the people see all these miracles happen. They're led away, and because they lose faith, they're wandering in the wilderness again for 40 years before the promise comes. You could think of King David, who knew he was going to become king, but before that happens, he's serving King Saul. Saul's going crazy and keeps trying to kill him, but David feels called to honor the king and not betray him, and so he's got to wait for that promise. And we also see Jesus here, same thing, tempted before the ministry begins, but it's also not, not just him. Paul shows the same thing. In Galatians, Paul tells us that after Christ was revealed to him and the scales came off of his eyes, all that, he didn't begin preaching right away. He went away to Arabia, desert, for three years. So this is a pattern we see in Scripture, that we have these mountaintop experiences. God speaks to us, and then we go through a dry spell, and we wonder why. So I want to say a couple of things in closing to help you when you go through those wilderness experiences. Number one, recognize this is part of God's nature in dealing with mankind. Don't be surprised by it. 1 Peter 4.12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. This is how God deals with His people. There's a reason for it. I'll get there in a second. But just when you get a great experience with God, almost begin to recognize that, okay, something's coming. That's going to happen. And that's not a a negative outlook on life. That's recognizing this is what God does in His people to bring about promises. Number two, remain faithful, remain obedient. If you fall, or I should say when you fall, knowing our flesh, get back up and keep going. Have the heart that Micah had. Micah 7 verse 8 is so wonderful. Rejoice not over me, my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. When you fall, rise. Don't think because you fell, you've got to spend a couple of days feeling bad before you can come back to God, so you really feel sorry first. Come back right then. Just get back up. 
Point number three I wanted to make. As you wait, as you seek, as you persevere, there will come an end to the waiting. There will come a time when God sends you encouragement. This is part of the pattern we see in all these examples is that it ends. The wilderness does end. And look, we see here in chapter 4, verse 11, then the devil left him after he was tempted and he responded with Scripture. We'll look at that all next week. The devil left him and angels came and were ministering to him. So it does end. There's hope. The next point, you will see God's promises fulfilled. As you persevere through the trial, through that desert place, eventually what God has promised you will be fulfilled. You will see His promise fulfilled. Verse 17, from that time He began preaching. That's what He came to do, and it happened. But not right after the mountaintop experience, but after the desert and the trials and the temptations. So we see this pattern reflected over and over again in the Bible, and let's take hope in that. You're going to have mountaintop experiences, and you should, and they're great. Just receive them, enjoy them, bask in them, get all you can out of them. You're growing and learning, and you're being called in those times. But know that trials are going to follow that. And it's not just that the enemy knows now you're closer to God and he wants to attack you. That is true, but the bigger picture in God's sovereignty is that God is leading you into that. Why? James 1 verse 2, which was somewhere. Oh, I just read it. James 1 verse 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. God is using those times to make you perfect and complete, lacking nothing. More important to God than what He's calling you to do is, is who He's calling you to be in Him. So He may call you to a task, but more important to Him is who He's calling you to be. And He's not using the task specifically to shape you, although it does shape you, he's using trials to shape you and to make you complete, lacking nothing. 